I'll read Job 16, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you, but I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved, and if I remain silent, how am I eased? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this evidence of your love uh, in the life of Job, even despite what occurred in his life. We pray, Lord, that you would open uh, our eyes to see and open our ears to hear uh, the wisdom that you have to share with us. We thank you, Father, for all things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A question that I answered on the CPC elder exam that I may have referred to once before was how would you uh, use the uh, book of Revelation in teaching in, or in preaching? And my first two uh, words were very carefully. And I think that applies to the book of Job as well. Uh, the book of Job can easily be misused. And so I didn't go into the choice of Job uh, lightly. I uh, have spent the last week uh, listening to the book of Job 1 through 16 over and over and over again. But that is where the problem is, because you really do have to differentiate between who is speaking. And if you're listen, listening to it on tape, it's so hard to go back and figure out who's speaking. And if you're reading the Bible, you just flip an instant. But if I'm listening to it in CD, okay, I've got to start that over again. Where am I? Who's talking? And I'll sometimes have to back up one or two chapters. But it's important. You really have to keep it in context of what's going on. Obviously, the six verses that I've read need a little bit of context in order for you to make sense of what's going on in Job's life. And I'm sure most everyone is familiar with what has gone on in Job's life, but we will cover it just to make sure that everyone is brought up to the same level. And so I first want to begin with the character of Job and then go into this court of heaven because that's really how the book begins. And so we'll go back to Job 1 and we'll move forward to Job 16 where we are. But I would uh, think of this kind of like a plane trip. You spend a lot of time at the beginning, you spend a lot of time at the end, and yet you kind of fly over everything in between very quickly, and that's what I'll do today. Uh, and while I'm your pilot flying you over a few of these chapters, I'll just mention a few of the highlights. But uh, I don't want you to get lost. We're going to focus on what happens in this court of heaven, and then we will also focus on leading up to why Job uh, accuses them of being miserable comforters, as it was his right to do because they were. So now, first, Job is probably a time that is occurring within the book of Genesis. And so, in other words, the time of Job is very old. It's Genesis 12, essentially. It's after 11 and, and yet uh, probably prior to Abraham. Because at the end of the book of Job, 
after he's already been a very wealthy man, very successful man, uh, had 10 children that were all on their own, he is confronted with this, and then he lives another 140 years after that. So he was probably at least 185, 190 years, and that's if he engages in marriage at like 18 and has all of his children in the first 10 years. So it's very likely he was over 200 years old at death. Abraham was 175. Abraham's father was 205. Abraham's grandfather was 235. So you could see that Job probably fits in, at least with the way that the age was declining so rapidly at that point, he fits in more with Abraham's father or grandfather in terms of time. So this is very early. Yet the Jews, even though this man is not a Jew, obviously, uh, because those wouldn't have come about until long after Abraham even, but the Israelites, the Jews, never had a problem with the book of Job. They never considered tossing it out of their canon. They've always regarded it as historically accurate and applicable to their lives, and as we should. So now, he was wealthy and successful. Let me read verses 1 through 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Job was not only great, he was the greatest, like Muhammad Ali, the greatest. And so he was not a wealthy man, he was the wealthiest man. And so there are many things that you can contrast Job with, many people you can contrast him with. We know he was blameless and upright. That's not supposition. That is God's word telling us he was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. God himself says this later, and we'll read that. And he was unique. We'll read that also. God refers to him as unique on the earth. He was, in a sense, God's champion. He was like Adam in that he overcame the temptation of his wife. Adam succumbed to the temptation of his wife for different reasons. It was a different temptation, but yet Job overcame it, whereas Adam fell to it. He endured suffering somewhat similar to Jesus, and we'll get into this in a little more detail, but you'll, we'll see exactly how he overcame the temptation to sin, just as Jesus did. He was wealthy like Solomon. And yet his wealth didn't corrupt him. He was blameless and upright. So now, this is the Job of Scripture. This is the Job of history. This is the Job that we will one day know in heaven. Now, in this court of heaven, let me read verses 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now that's not very precise, is it? He doesn't want to tell God exactly what he's been up to. God, of course, knows. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is a remarkable portion of Scripture. It's remarkable to have insight into this conversation between Satan and the Lord, to see the freedom that Satan experienced in being able to enter into the court of heaven. It doesn't say he was a son of God, but he came with. He just kind of came in addition to the sons of God. So now, what are we to learn from this? We can't, this is not where I want to spend all my time, but I have to cover a few things. I want to cover four things. First, note that God brings up Job. Satan doesn't. You know why? Because Job is a thorn in Satan's side. He hates this man. He can't get at him. That's why he accuses God of having put a hedge around him. And he had. That is the blessing that we have in serving God. He helps us against our enemy, the adversary. So, Note that God's words do not change from chapter 1 to chapter 2. He says exactly this. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? He says that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, after he has overcome the first temptation to reject God. But Satan's words have to change. Why? Because Satan's, uh, his prediction has been falsified by Job's conduct by his conduct. Listen to what Satan said. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to his face. So you see, all Satan wanted to do was destroy his stuff. And yet God gave him permission to go farther, and Satan did go farther. He destroyed all of his children. But yet all he had said is touch all that he has. Now, we might refer to our children as our possessions. We might refer to our wife as husbands as our possessions. But I don't think that's implied here. I think he's really only talking about his stuff. You reduce him to poverty, and he will curse you to your face. Satan's words had to change in going from chapter 1 to chapter 2, because look what he says in chapter 2. Here he said, remember... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. But what does he say in chapter 2? Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, maybe the first one does include his children and his wife, right? Maybe God did give him, maybe Satan wanted access to his family. Maybe God gave him access to his family. And so you have to ask yourself, why didn't he take his wife? And yet we see the answer to that later. So see, Satan's words must change. God's did not. Isn't that interesting? It's exactly what happens with any man, any created being. Our words have to change because we are mistaken. We are proven false, whereas God is never proven false. He is always proven true. So his, his words do not change at all from chapter 1 to chapter 2. So now the, the second point, God rules over Satan and controls his bounds. He tells Satan exactly how far he can go and no farther, and Satan must honor that. We don't know exactly how this works, but we know that Satan must honor it. 
The third point, Satan challenges God to attack Job. If you touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. So see, Satan is even tempting God, whereas God does not do this. But his response is, no, you can have access to him. Uh, years ago, as a young believer and as a young Reformed believer, I read Lorraine Bettner's Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. And I was, as I was reading, I got to this one point about two-thirds of the way through, and there was this one little brief sentence, and it said, Satan is a tool in the hand of God. And it just struck me as being so true as, and so profound. That alters your worldview. If you recognize that Satan is a tool in the hand of God, you know then it's God that wields him. It's God that allows him to do all that he does. And yet, it allows God to be free from sin, to be free from this. He has this created being that has gone awry, gone off the reservation, so to speak, and he's wreaking all this evil, but even God has him for a purpose. And so in our context, we know their purposes are different. God and Satan have totally different objectives in Job's life. Remember, Satan can't see into your heart any better than I can. God sees everything. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your thoughts before you do. But Satan does not. See, he's a created creature just like we are. But he has such experience with man, with fallen man, that it would perhaps appear at times that he has that power, but he doesn't. So you see, Satan has one purpose, and that is to destroy these hedges and get through to Job and do damage to him. And God allows that to happen. God removes the hedges that had protected him. And then Satan has access to him, and he takes him down. And let's get to that. Now, calamity strikes. I'll read from verse 13 through 19. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So you see, Satan does this for a reason. He's been given full license. These messengers arrive within minutes of one another. And they slam Job, and they slam Job, and they slam Job. So Satan wants to totally overwhelm Job with two things. First is the loss of all of his physical wealth and the loss of all of his children. The second, he wants him to know that this came from God. Because he's the only one with this type of power. Satan doesn't have this type of power. Only God does. And so Satan wanted Job to know two things, that he can take all that he has, and he got that license from God. And yet, look at Job's response. It is amazing. 
He says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job did not sin. He did not blame God. It says, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrongdoing. Job responded very well. Would any of us have responded as well as Job did? I don't think so. He was unique. He was a champion of God, and yet God raised him up for this purpose. And so that's what we have to have empathy for. God raised Job up so that he could take him down in this way as an example to us. We have 42 chapters that memorialize this man and all that he did, all that he endured. So now Job immediately recognized it. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. So see, Satan got that point across. He knew this was from God. There was no chance involved here. Uh, a few years ago, I had a coworker who, uh, be- he lived in rural Iowa, and he began a, a weekend activity that he would take barns down, old abandoned barns, and then he would uh, sell the wood for profit at places. I'm not sure who he would sell them to, but he would take down all the barns, and he, he kind of developed a system, and yet he usually needed someone to help him. Well, one day, he had his pastor come help him, and so He's instructed his pastor in exactly how to help him, and they had just gotten done. And what would happen is they would, he would kind of secure these things, and, and whole walls would fall down at once. And uh, he stepped out of the way, but his pastor walked right into the path of what was going to come down. I mean, he had just told him not to do that, but yet he did it just thoughtlessly, mindlessly. And so down comes this whole barn wall and hits this pastor right here, breaks both of his thighs right in an instant. And he said that the instant it happened, what would you scream out? (laughs) What he screamed out was, Lord Jesus, give me strength. His heart was so filled with a love of God and an awareness of God that that's his first thought. His first thought was not, what's happened to me? Uh, you know, scream out a, an obscenity like, like many of us would. His first thought was, oh God, I need help. And so see, it's not to say that in our minds there isn't an instant where we might feel something other than a love of God, something other than a, than a running to God. But there is a regulator in righteous men, righteous women, that regulates what goes through their mind and before it comes out of their mouth. And if that regulator is powerful enough, if it, has, if it is fueled enough by the word of God, that regulator acts even on your thoughts. You crush the thoughts even before they are fully formed. So see, that's what happened in this pastor's mind. And I'm so impressed by that. When I hear something like this, it gives me uh, encouragement that this is possible. That see, even in our sinful flesh, this is possible. And Job's life is an example of the same thing. Job could endure what he endured because he was a righteous man before God. He had given God his all. 
Now, let's walk through now what happened with his wife, because I'll just kind of skate through chapter 2. Chapter 2, you realize there's another uh, time in heaven, and this is where Satan has to say, oh, now if you attack his flesh, and so then he gives him the power over his flesh, but he tells him not to kill him. And so the first thing that we then see is this. He took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. He had boils all over his body, and even one boil is painful and messy. These are boils all over his body from his head to the, to the soles of his feet. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Where did she get these words from? Look up here. Look up here at chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3, rather. Uh, still he holds fast to his integrity. This is what God told Satan. Still Job holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has will he give for his life. Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And she said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? She's throwing God's word back at him. Curse God and die. So where do you think she got these words? Obviously from Satan. That's why Satan kept her around, because he had power and influence over her. He didn't have it over Job. He hadn't gained it, but yet obviously he knew, even when he took the ten kids, that he wanted to keep his wife around, because his wife was not of the same cloth as Job. And he could use her against him, and he does. Now let's go on to the friends. At verse 11, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. I want to point out six things about Job's three friends here. First, they inconvenienced themselves. They each came from his own place. We don't know how far away they were, but it's inconvenient to do these types of things, right? But they were close enough friends to be willing to set aside all their own activities and go visit with him for an extended period of time. They were seven days silent, and who knows how long then the ensuing dialogues took. Two, they talked to one another about it. They made an appointment to go there. So see, they were probably praying for him, they were communicating about him, and they wanted to aid him. There is a, a quote that was in the Matthew Henry commentary, and it says, it is good manners to be an unbidden guest at the house of mourning. And that means that when you have something that overcomes a friend, you must just go to them. Don't call, don't write, don't expect an invitation. You have to just go. If you're that good of a friend, you should go. It's your responsibility as their friend or loved one. So three, they purposed to mourn with him and to comfort him. They had this as the purpose of their heart, those two things. They wanted to mourn with him and comfort him. When they arrived, they did not recognize him. They probably visited with him regularly. These were, like, these were men like Job. They were elderly. They were wealthy. They were men of power and influence. And they were friends. 
And so they visited with him periodically. But yet, here he is. Now, if you have boils all over your body, you're going to probably be wearing minimal clothing. You're not going to want clothing scratching them all the time. And he's got this potsherd. So he's probably got minimal clothing sitting in ashes outside. And he's filled with grief. So they don't even recognize him. His uh, countenance is so distorted by what he's going through. They don't even recognize him. They join him in his grief. And to me, this is the thing that they do well. They do very little well in the rest of the book. But here, they weep, they tear their robes, they put dust on their heads, and they sit with him silently for seven days. So they do mourn with him. They do the mourning really well. It's the comforting that they fail at. They are good friends, but they are unprepared to deal with the depth of Job's grief, and we'll get to that. Now we go to what Job does in chapter 3. He has endured everything now so wonderfully, and yet in Job 3, we see where his heart is. 3.1, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And then it goes on for several verses, like eight or nine verses, and he, he curses his birth over and over and over again in a myriad of ways. He, he, reg- he regrets that the planets even line up in order to bring his birth about. He's angry at all of these things. In 3.11, he says, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? So see, he longs for death now. He wishes he hadn't been born. He wishes if he had been born, he'd died as an infant at birth. In verse 20, Why is the light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but it does not come, and search for it more than for hidden treasure? Do you know how people search for hidden treasure? With all their heart. And yet he longs for death more so. He is so filled with despair. He wants to die. Now, a question I have at this point, and I believe I know the answer, although I can't be certain, is has God abandoned him? And I believe he has in some ways because Job laments throughout the rest of the book how he really doesn't feel that he's with God now as he had been before. He had felt so close to God, so intimate with God, and now he's not. And he repeats that throughout. So, I believe it's possible, though, because you see, Jesus was tested in the wilderness. God removed himself from him, but he was afterwards comforted. Jesus was abandoned on the cross as he was enduring sin, but yet later elevated to glory. God tested Job. He tested Jesus, and he tests us. Will we seek God, or will we not? Will we grow bitter and despondent and despair and stop what it is that we're supposed to do in seeking God when we don't feel his presence with us. He tells us what we're to do. We're always to seek God. And yet, we must not tire of that. You remember in Daniel, when the angel tells Daniel, I was dispatched the moment you started praying, but I was opposed. And it took days for that angel to get through to Daniel. But Daniel kept praying because he knew the answer would come. Just as we know God is there. If you don't feel his presence, That doesn't mean you should stop praying. You should stop reading the word. No, no. You go that much more diligently into the word and into prayer. You seek God and he will be found of you. 
but he just wants to make you work for it at times. He doesn't want it to be easy for you. Why? Because it's him strengthening your faith, strengthening your walk, strengthening your resistance to evil. This is what God does. Now, how do Job's three friends respond to what he says? Now, note, Job's words were really just despair and grief. He laments his life. That's all. He doesn't say anything bad about God. He doesn't say anything bad about them. So now our plane is taking off. We're going to get going much, much faster here. So now uh, all of three, Job's three friends are probably older than him. Job was uh, young by comparison. Eliphaz, in that he spoke first, is probably the most elderly. He is given the position of honor in speaking first to Job. And I'm going to now read uh, sections from Job 4 all the way through to uh, Job uh, 13. And I'll tell you where I am. I'm in Job 4, verse 2, and I'll read 2, 5, 6, 7, and 9. If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? These are Eliphaz's first words. He can't wait to correct Job. You have strengthened weak hands, but now it comes upon you and you are weary. It touches you and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Without any facts, he's blaming Job. He's telling him that his faith is misplaced, that he had it in his reputation. Now that that's gone, he's abandoned God because of that. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent... Abel? It's a rhetorical question, obviously, but yet people perish in innocence, and yet this man is denying that. Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now he's getting to accuse Job of sin and his children. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they're consumed. He's insinuating that Job's ten children died because of their sin, and so God is only acting justly in killing all ten of your children. He has absolutely no facts to support this. He's just assuming it. Bad thing happened, you must have done something wrong. That's the way police cope. I've maybe shared that before with you, but I remember reading a book 30 years ago when I was a kid. And police cope with the, the horrors of crime by just assuming that you deserved it. All these bad things that happened to you, you deserved it. You know, if you didn't get it for this, you probably should have got it for that. It's just a way that police try to main, maintain a, a worldview that is consistent with what they see, especially if they're not believers. That is a temptation. Oh, they all deserve it. They're all just bad. The only time that's a challenge for them really is when they're dealing with little children who couldn't possibly have deserved what it is that they suffered. Now, Job responds to Eliphaz's comments with moderation, even though he's been insinuated that he's in sin, that his children deserve to die, he says this, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. He admits that what he has said is because of his grief, because of his despair. He's admitting that he's not exactly in full control of his faculties. Cut me some slack is, in a sense, what he's saying. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, 
that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Job appears to never consider suicide because that would be sin. He is a blameless, upright man. He wants to serve God, yet he is longing for release from his despair by death. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He's saying, he's instructing them. He's saying, you should be kind to me. I'm the one that suffered all this loss. Why are you attacking me? And see, Eliphaz spoke first, but you have to understand that Eliphaz's two other counselors there, they could have been expected to intervene if they disagreed with what he was saying, and they didn't. They agree with it too. It's consistent with all their worldviews. What Job has suffered must be due to sin. They don't know what it is, but they know it's there. Where there's smoke, there's fire, as they say. Job says, teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words. He's open up to, if I have sin, please tell me what it is. He wants to be free from this too. He seems honestly to be seeking wisdom, to be seeking knowledge, to be seeking correction, a correction based on reality, not based on their suppositions. You overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. And he then is saying, hey, look at me. I am your friend. Look at me. Talk to me. Don't talk at me. And yet, that isn't really what they do. My eye, now we get to uh, this verse uh, 7, Job 7, 7. My eye will never again see good. He is so depressed. And he assumes in the next few verses that he's going to die. He believes, he longs for that. He thinks that he will soon die. Then he says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. That's why he continues speaking because he's got so much grief in him and he feels that he is going to die soon. And he feels that he can get this out, just share this, benefit other people perhaps. So now we go on to the second counselor and this is Bildad. And Bildad says this in 8.3, does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you. So now he's saying, your children deserve to die. But hey, you're still alive. You've still got a chance. God must not be as angry with you as he was with your children. But... If you would seek him earnestly, then he will respond. It's just this simplified worldview that they are attempting to beat Job up with. How does Job respond to what he just said? Again, with despair. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. This is the first thing I've found in the book of Job, and it's at chapter 9, verse 23, where he appears to be casting aspersions upon God. He says, if the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. So see, now Job is conveying some of his bitterness towards God himself. And he says in verse 24, 
if it is not he, who else could it be? He knows this came from God, and yet he's questioning his whole way of looking at the world. What has happened to him has destroyed how he viewed the world. You know why? He viewed it the same as his three friends did. That's the thing that strikes you here. He is upset with his friends, and yet he could have been doing the same thing if he was in their shoes. Now, I feel he would have counseled them, though. They didn't really minister to him at all. They didn't try to comfort him. But I believe he still would have believed that they deserved it because his worldview was the same as theirs. It still is. But he's mystified because he's like, what did I do to deserve this? I didn't deserve this. God is being unjust. Job does think God is being unjust. He's not accused him of it yet, but he's thinking it. If you go back to chapter 2 in which he is attacked and he has the boils it says and in all this job did not sin with his lips it qualifies it in chapter one where all of his children die and all his property is taken away it just says he didn't sin but in chapter two it says he didn't sin with his lips see by this time i believe it's already begun to eat at him what has happened to him has already begun to manifest itself in sinful thoughts that now he finally begins to share and it's mostly in response to these attacks that are being made against him by his friends. So now, let's go to what I consider to be the theme verse. Uh, Phil and Gary and I were talking about this uh, Wednesday, going off topic at our session meeting, and we were talking about how can every book of the Bible be captured with one theme verse, one verse that pretty much gives you the whole concept. And... uh, I don't know yet, but I don't think that can be true of Job because there are two main themes in Job, one of which I'm exploring today and the other, I don't know, we'll see. I might do it again when I have a chance in two weeks. But the theme verse is in verse uh, 15 here and it's chapter 13, verse 15. Job says this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. So you see, he's admitting that he's got this tension between loving God and trusting God and yet defending himself. And that is a tension that he feels all throughout this. It's not loosed from him until God confronts him. Way down in chapter, what, 38. But so right now, this is... The theme verse, I believe, for the first 37 chapters of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. And who of us could say anything different? This is what we all do, I believe. So now, let's uh, go on to Eliphaz's uh, second speech to Job and his most brutal, I would say, I'll read chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. It's interesting to me that the high priest said pretty much the same thing to Jesus. He is blasting Job 
and accusing him of sins that he has no evidence for. Are you the first man who was born, or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? Now he's getting defensive. He's the elder one here. Job should just straighten up and fly right. Why are you fighting against me? I'm the one that knows better than you. Look at you here in your ashes and your boils and no property and no children. Doesn't God love me more than you? That's what he's implying. What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you and the words spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? He says this. Why does your heart carry you away when he's lost all of his property and all of his children? I mean, this man is just mean. He's totally forgotten why he's come to comfort this man. He's just in a theological argument with him now. He's probably Presbyterian. <laughs> this is a weakness we Presbyterians have. And what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? Now let's turn to the text for today. And I'm almost afraid to consider the time. I've probably taken too long to do this. I will reread the text that I read at the beginning. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's place. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you, but I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Now, I included verse 6, even though in the New King James it starts a new paragraph, and I included it for this reason. Let me read it. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved, and if I remain silent... How am I eased? See, Job admits, he confesses, that if he remains silent, he is in despair and depression. If he pours out his grief in his words, he is in despair and depression. It doesn't change. Neither path is leading him to resolving this. That's where we come in. That's where friends and family and anybody who wants to comfort the grief-stricken come in. That's our jobs. We are there to comfort them. We are there to help them through their grief. So, first, we can help. Time alone is not the ultimate healer. We know that time helps. But just as a wound heals, doesn't a wound heal better and faster if it's treated? if it's cleaned, if it's kept up and maintenanced, if you bandage it cleanly every day. I remember when I was a foolish young person, now I'm a foolish herb person, but I was a foolish young person once, and I was chasing a girl at a church picnic, of all things, and uh, suddenly it dawned on me that I had chased her onto a baseball field, and I'm about to take her down. She had been teasing me. And, <laughs> and uh, as I was taking her down, I thought, well, this is stupid. I'm going to hurt her. So I bore the brunt of it. I started taking her down, and I lowered my knees, and I just let my knees drag across the infield. And yet I gently laid her down. Well, I paid the price. My, 
my, both my knees were scraped raw, and they were, I didn't treat them very well. I didn't, never went to the doctor, never did anything much. You know, I figured, well, you know, they scab over. But they just kept pussing up, and, you know, it's nasty. But, you know, hey, Job's covered with boils, right? So it's in context. And uh, I, I, I drove a car at the time that had a clutch, and, and the firewall was broken, unbeknownst to me, and it would flex, and the clutch cable would be like 10 times harder to push than it should be. And so I've got these, these messed up knees that hurt me anytime I use them, and I'm driving this stupid car back and forth to work, and in, in heavy commute traffic out in Southern California, I was miserable, but I was foolish. And that's what he's stuck in. He's stuck in the midst of these wounds that will not heal, and he can't heal them himself. He is dependent, totally dependent on others and his friends to help him. And they're refusing to do so. Instead, they're choosing to argue with him. They're choosing to fight him. But we, we are like the ointment that can help to heal those wounds much faster. The wound is there. The wound will take time to heal. We know that. But we can help. Always remember two things. Now, all of this is, I'm going to try to convey practical wisdom uh, for us to help people who are going through grief. And believe me, I've always been bad at this. I'm not an extrovert. My EQ is here. My IQ, I don't know where that is. But anyway, my EQ is low, and it's taken me a long time to try to get better at this. But I want us all to get better. First, you must always remember what has happened to this person. Don't ever forget that. These men responded poorly because they just went down a path that they're much more comfortable with. Their IQs were up here and their EQs were down here. So let's talk theology. Yeah, let's do that. I don't want to talk about all that you've gone through. And so it kind of feeds into our character. We just want to go and talk about the weather, talk about anything else that we like talking about, instead of being open to talking with the grief-stricken about what they're going through. Even if there are no words we can say, to just be with them and not try to make small talk, not diminish what it is that they're going through. So that leads to the second point, and that is to remember why you're there. Remember what's happened to them, and remember why you're there. They said they were there to mourn with him and comfort him. They did not comfort him, and so they failed in that badly. Their initial actions in the seven days of silence were wonderful, wonderful. They got right down with him in the dirt. They ripped their robes. They sat there silently because his grief was so great. They got a good start. They just didn't continue well. They didn't know what to say. So they argued with them. It's probably what they did on previous visits, right? They argue theology, argue business. You know, that's what people do. You see the old farmers down at the donut shop, you know, and what are they talking about? Oh, they're past time. They're probably arguing with one another. Oh, yeah, yeah. telling all their same old stories. That's what they want to do. They want to go back to the way it was before, not go forward into this new world where everything's topsy-turvy and nothing makes sense. What not to say or do? Don't speak in platitudes. This is probably all of our greatest weakness. I know it's mine. God means this for your good. You'll be stronger at the end of this. God will not test you beyond what you're able. All things work together for the good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purposes, right? Haven't we all said these things? Haven't we all thought these things? When people are going through horrible trials, they're no help. They really aren't. They're true. Sure, they're true. But facts don't help people. 
you must comfort them. That's not facts. That's just you, your presence, your love, your mercy, your kindness, your thoughtfulness. So now, don't ignore the people or the topic. This is one thing that I think all of us also tend to do. In other words, if we don't go to them with the platitudes, we just ignore them. You know, give it a couple weeks, give it three weeks. This is when, when uh, older folks lose their husband or lose their wives. This is the thing they complain about most, is all their friends just evaporate. They, they just are uncomfortable around you now, and they don't want to talk to you about it. Well, the key is, is that you must talk about it to get past it, Right? to have your relationship absorb this, to grow stronger from it. And yet you need to work through those uncomfortable conversations. What to say? I have four things. And this is actually taken from, I think, a grief counselor that I think is very good conventional wisdom. First, address the issue directly. I heard that your mother died. I heard that your father died. I heard that you've been diagnosed with this or that. You just bring it up very honestly above board. You don't try to sugarcoat it. You just bring it up. And yet you bring it up with sympathy. Back when my dad died, I had people, oh, did your dad die? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. It's like, what, just getting your facts straight? I mean, it's just so weird. What are you, a detective or something? It's like they offered no sympathy. I mean, I can understand if, if my dad had died 10 years ago and people have tried to, oh, your dad, I'm sorry. I said, well, you know, it was 10, 11 years ago. I'm over it. Not everybody is. Sometimes it takes longer. I remember reading a post on Facebook. A, a fellow was talking about his dad having died and he said, you know, this is the first anniversary of my dad's death where I really haven't felt it as poignantly as I had. And, and he had died 11 years earlier. So see, people do have different levels of comfort with talking about their, their dead loved ones. And so express compassion. If, if you're not going to express compassion, don't bring it up. You know, there are levels of this. So if you bring it up, be ready to express sorrow. And if you're at a loss for words, you just tell them that. Oh, I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry. I love you. You know, if you want to talk to me about it, please do. And so that's the fourth thing. Ask them, do you feel like talking about it? Don't assume they do. People are all different in how they handle grief. Some people are extremely private in how they handle grief, and they don't want to talk to you about it. They don't want to talk to anybody about it. Perhaps not now, perhaps not ever. So now, what to do? So we just talked about what to say, what not to say. Now we have what to do. First, and the thing that Job's friends failed utterly to do, and that is this, do not respond to personal attacks. Don't try to correct them in their anger. There's just no point. That is not you comforting them. You want to comfort them. If they attack you, absorb it. If they attack other people, absorb it. Even in good times, we are uh, told by God to endure attacks and to not give evil for evil. How much more so when we're dealing with someone that is hurting this badly? Now, it is... God's providence, I believe, that has directed me to share this because this just came up. About four months ago, I was contacted on Facebook by a cousin that I'd never had contact with. She's about four or five years older than me, so she was kind of my older brothers and sisters' age. But uh, she found me on Facebook and just friended me, and so we talked a couple times. And it was actually after the death of an aunt, you know, her aunt and my aunt. We, we share uh, aunts like that. So this is what happened, though. About, about two months ago, 
she posted that she went into the hospital. Her mom, my aunt, went into the hospital and uh, just for low hemoglobin. But a week later, she was back in the hospital with double pneumonia. Three weeks later, she fell and broke her clavicle bone, and then four days later, she was diagnosed with acute leukemia. This gets us up to March 31st, just about a month ago. And then about a week ago, she went back into the hospital, low blood pressure, down to 115 pounds, got transfusions, came back home. That's where she is now. So my cousin posted this on Facebook Friday. For all my friends on here, I'm going to rant for a while so you can ignore this because this is for some of my family members. You know who you are. Your grandmother and mother is very ill. I don't know if you are all in denial or what, but I have kept quiet for long enough. As for her going to any party is out of the question. She can't even walk to the bathroom by herself or even get up. Her flesh is rotting on her legs and she is skin and bones. She is full of sores everywhere, her mouth, her legs, everything. If you think she's enjoying her final days, you are sadly very wrong. You should all be ashamed of yourselves for not even calling or coming to visit. So I really hope you enjoy your party. I have finally said my piece. I didn't know what's going on. This is back in New York. And uh, yet I posted something of comfort to her, hopefully. I saw this about an hour after she posted it. And I just said, my heart goes out to you and your mom, Sandy. And during the final days is hard. And for too many, it is out of sight, out of mind. May those who you wish to hear respond while there's still time. And then I was wondering about who she was talking to, how they would respond to this, if they were her friends on Facebook. I presume they were since she chose to use this. Uh, about an hour or two later, I read this, and this is from a young lady. Wow, I guess the party you're talking about is ours. We are so excited about being homeowners again. We have kept tabs on grandma's status almost daily. We'd love to come for a visit if she and you are up for it. What a great response. I was pretty impressed with, I don't know the relations, but this is apparently the, the uh, daughter of a cousin's cousin or something like that. But anyway, I'm related to her somehow, and I think she's really wise. So I'm glad to be related to her, but unfortunately I'm related to the bum that wrote next. <laughs> well, if you're talking about us, which it seems you which it seems that way, I don't see your son neither. So he's not very kind. And she later went on to post saying, yes, I'm speaking to my son as well as to you. So the reason I bring that up, though, is that it is evidence of what she's going through. See, her mom is not passed away yet, but she's on death's door. And so she's grieving already. And she's grieving the poor treatment that her mom is getting from her uh, siblings and, and their children. And so she just wanted to throw it out there, Facebook, people use it for that. You know, it's probably not wise, but that's where she is and that's what she did. And so her, this, this uh, granddaughter was just so wise in how she responded, so loving and kind, looking past all of the hurt, all of the accusations, and just attempting to do the right thing. So see, that's what we need to do. We need to not respond to the personal attacks. Two, we need to comfort and console them. They need to be hugged. They need to be cried with. They need to be reminisced with. They need to be protected from the witless and the crude. And this is where I'm going to share you a story about where I was witless and crude. Uh, Zaya, I've shared this once before, but Zaya was just not quite two years old. And he had a cyst that was distorting his vision. And so we chose to have it operated on. He'd had it for like a year. 
And so we had the operation, but they came to the room, the pre-op room where we were, and they administered this little serum, knocked him out. He's sleeping. They wait and wait and wait, and finally the nurses come to get him after like 20 minutes, and you're just waking up. And so I'm walking with them down to where they need to take him in, and they take him from me. And now he's being handed over to these three strange women, and he just woke up from this drug-induced sleep. He starts wailing. And they say, come with us, you know. So they take him, they keep him, but I'm walking with him. I'm supposed to be comforting him. That's why they bring me along. But I'm getting pretty ticked off with his behavior. He's usually a pretty good boy. Why is he doing this? And so I start adopting this stern tone with him. Zaya, now Zaya, I tell you, I start getting so firm that one of the nurses looks at me like I'm from, like I'm from Mars and just grabs me and says, you wait here. And she shuts this door. I'm locked out. I can't get in that door. I'm like, where am I? I don't know where I am. I'm angry. I'm his father. I should be there. But yet, she did the right thing. I was being a total jerk. I was totally getting lost in my role. I should be comforting him. He's 22 months old. I shouldn't take this personally. This is an affront to my authority. You know, That's what I was seeing. And, and Zion knows this. He's probably seen it more than once. But so anyway, that's what our jobs are to the grieving, right? To protect them from the witless and the clueless, even if it's us, even if it's someone we care about. We should be able to take the bull by the horns and deal with this. Protect that person. That's our jobs. Another one is take the initiative in offering, offering practical assistance. And so you run errands for them. You clean up. You do the dishes. You help with the funeral arrangements. You know what I would be doing? I would be asking them 100 questions. You know, if, if I weren't any wiser, if I didn't learn from this, that's what I'd be doing with them. What are you, what are, what are, interrogating them is what my wife calls it. I'd be interrogating these poor people. And she'd be like, can't you just leave them alone? So just do do things. Do the right things. Do the things that will help them. That's what you need to do. Watch their children. Take their pets out, you know, to take for walks. You just absolve them of these responsibilities that, frankly, they're at this point shell-shocked. They don't know how to deal with it themselves. And just do it. Don't seek their permission. Just do it. You know, if they get angry with you, it'll probably be tomorrow. Why did you do that? Because I thought it was the right thing to do, you know? And then if they get angry with you, fine. Take it. That's why you're there, right? You're there to let them take it out on you. Now, lastly, don't expect to be called, like I said earlier. I want to reinforce that. Go. If you are a loved one, if you are a friend, you go. You don't write them. You don't call them. You don't ask them. You just go, and you make yourself present, and you offer to help, or you help without their, their uh, making an offer. Now, Job's friends cared for him. I don't want you to lose sight of that. We all care for the grieving that we come into contact with. We just don't often do the right thing, or at least not always. They were entirely unprepared to deal with the situation they found. They must have had very little creativity in their minds. I mean, they couldn't put themselves in his shoes. They were not empathetic. May it not be so with us. May God make all of us compassionate comforters of the grieving. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Job uh, that you poured out for our benefit uh, to see just what it is that we should and shouldn't do. 
We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And we pray that you would make us wise and uh, loving and compassionate comforters to those that grieve. And we pray, Lord, that you would have us to make amends, perhaps, at times when we did not do so well. And perhaps we still lack the courage uh, to confront uh, the past in ways that we've failed to do what it is we need to do, or at least to do it well. We ask you, Father, to be with us now. We thank you for this time, for this day, and for all of your many blessings. In Christ's name, amen.